Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a legend, a guitar legend, arguably from one of the first punk bands ever, Paul Therio, guitarist for the Imperial Dogs, joins me today for... Uh, this is such an amazing conversation to get to have for me because this is a band that really kind of kicks it off for certainly one part of the world, but we will talk about all that in one second. First, if you would like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address turned at a punk podcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. I love you, Tristan. Thank you for all the hard work you do. And he will get the message to me. You can also find Tristan running the turned out of punk Instagram page and the turned out of punk Facebook page. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that, you know, that we do this podcast where one week it's, you know, Dallas Green, one week it's the guy from the Imperial Dogs, one week, who knows where it goes next week? We know punk is a very broad term and we try and we try to encompass as much of it as we can here on the show. So let those people know about it. You can also subscribe to it and rate it on your podcast platform of choice. And thank you to everyone that does do that over there on iTunes. Um, really do really means a lot. Thank you very much. You can also support it by, uh, uh, heading over to, uh, patreon.com slash turn out a punk where we put up footnotes. There's also some video versions of some upcoming episodes and some past episodes and things like that. So head on over there and thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everyone that does do that. It really does keep this thing going. Really, really does do that. So thank you very much. Uh, also speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do, but we want to help you cover the costs of doing it. And they do, they help me cover, Costs, which who 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 would have thought there were costs associated with doing a free podcast, but there are. So thank you very much to Vans for uh, helping me deal with those costs. And uh, if you want to check out the band I play in, Fucked Up, we are coming to some cities. I'm not going to say your town necessarily because I don't think we're going to that many cities, but we're going to a few cities. First of all, we're going out on tour with Faith No More this September um, check out the dates over there. If you just look, look up faith, no more fucked up, it'll come up, but you can also find them on fucked up.cc where you will also find information about the David comes to life 10th anniversary tour that we're going to be doing in the beginning of the next year to 2022. And we might be coming to a place near you. We're going to be announcing more dates and Matador is going to be reissuing that record. And also tank crimes has put out year of the horse, which is the hour and a half long song that fucked up did over last year or so. I guess it was pretty much a year that we worked on it. Yeah, they, they were working on it for like five years on the music stuff, but I about a year I was doing stuff on it. So uh, you can check that thing out. Really proud of it. I think we all are in the band and uh, you can find that over there at tankcrimes.com, uh, which is run by Scotty Karate, my buddy, my pal, my uh, longtime friend. Tell Scotty I say what's up and order that record. And that is it. All right. On to today's show. Today on the show, Paul Therio is here from the Imperial Dogs. Now, the Imperial Dogs are a band that existed to me only really in legend for the longest time. And then I eventually tracked down the posthumous single, which was put out by Backdoor Man Records, which was the uh, label run by the people that did the fanzine, early L.A. punk fanzine, uh, 
a couple years after that and finally got to hear them. And oh my gosh, this band is incredible. They are highly influential. The, the song, this ain't the summer of love in title. And I think they took one of the lyrics and the general vibe, uh, blue oyster cult had a massive hit with that song. Um, but it's not really a cover when you hear the original, it's, it's kind of like a reinterpretation. And I do love the blue oyster cult version, but I gotta say the Imperial Dogs version is like one of the greatest punk songs ever. There is very little documentation of this band. There's that single which came out in 78. Then in 89, Dog Meat Records, the great Dog Meat Records out of Australia, did a reissue, which we talk about in the in the show. And then there's a DVD which came out, I guess, 12 years ago, 11 years ago now, of this one infamous show that they did at a university you can find a couple clips of it on YouTube. I'm going to warn you in advance, if you get on that thing and <laughs> check out that video, some of the uh, stage adornments don't age particularly well. There is definitely a drive to shock with a lot of the stuff that was coming out in the early part of the punk wave. So just be forewarned about the uh, bass player's cabinet decoration. But uh, barring that uh, poor choice in stage where they are without a doubt, one of the most incredible live acts I've ever seen. Um, not in person, of course, but on this DVD, you got to check this thing out. It's, it's wild. Like it's so weird with punk because, you know, we talk about this on the show all the time, but in the mid seventies, you have this energy that kind of goes around the world and hits in different places. And you have these bands kind of seemingly spawning out of nowhere, I guess a love of the stooges and sort of like, uh, a rejection of the music stuff that was happening around them. But you see it in Australia with radio Birdman and, and the saints, you see it happening in, in England with like Dr. Feelgood. And I guess you could say the pink fairies as well. And Hawkwind and, and I guess a little more hippie stuff, but England's a little more complicated, but you see it in New York, of course. And in LA, you see it with the Imperial dogs and Zolar X and all this incredible crop of protopunk that was coming out of that city. Uh, I don't, think I need to ramble on anymore. I do recommend you check out this band's songs uh, as if you can, because they are really kind of the forebearers for what would come a few years later, certainly in Los Angeles. Um, all right. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Paul Therio on Turned Out a Punk. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Well, as I was just telling you off air, I think This Ain't the Summer of Love is one of my favorite punk singles ever. So to get the chance to kind of nerd out and punish you like this, this is a big thrill for me. Well, thank you very much. I thought it was one of our better songs. And um, I don't know. I wrote a cool bass line for it. And I really, eh, I just like the overall composition. It was okay. Well, let's start off the way they all start off on this show, which is how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre or heard or even heard the word, I guess? Uh, probably first heard the word in a William Burroughs novel or something. Uh, but, you know, there wasn't punk per se. Well, probably heard it later. And do you remember Cream magazine? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it was like Lester Bangs probably used it more than anybody early on. It really wasn't punk per se when we had our band. It was just before all that. 
Well, yeah, I guess getting to, you know, because obviously you're one of the first punk bands ever, if not the first punk band ever. So what were you into? Like what kind of music and how'd you get into music in the first place? Well, I got into music as a saxophone player as a kid. And when I got to be like 16, I ended up in a professional big band with a guitarist named Lee Rittenauer. At the time, I thought I was a hotshot sax player. Then I heard Lee play guitar, and it's just like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> like, how how much you practice today, Lee? Eight hours. I go, well, jeez, I I need I need to surf and smoke hash. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, in high school later on, that's where I met Don and Tim. Because we were all in the band, in the high school freaking band. I was playing sax and they were playing trumpet. And that's how we met. And uh, once we got starting to play together, nobody could play. You know, that was a problem. But uh, we loved the music so much. We kept at it and then eventually found a drummer and it morphed into this band. So how long before the band formed did you kind of switch from sax to guitar? Oh, about five years. But I really wasn't serious about guitar until this band thing started. And then I had to go from not being able to do anything to having to do something pretty quick. So Yeah. So what kind of guitarists were you listening to around that time that you first got into it? Like, who were some of your guitar heroes? Well, that's pretty loaded. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the normal British folks, you know, Jeff Beck et al. Uh, I was into a lot of the country blues slide players and uh, Chicago electric players, you know, Buddy Guy, stuff like that. But, uh, it's pretty much a blues, R&B, and rock and roll influence overall. Well, you mentioned Cree Magazine earlier. Like, where were you hearing about music from? Was there, like, a particular record store you were going to? Because, like, you know, this is kind of not necessarily the stuff that was being played on popular radio, I imagine. No. And uh, we were just, like, rock and roll junkies. So we found this magazine somewhere and. I know Patty Smith wrote for Lester Banks, who's from my area here, and or was, and uh, it was just like the all the remnants of the uh, reviewers from Rolling Stone that we actually liked. Were there any local bands kind of happening around that time? No, it was really tough because there was no place for to play for original music. You pretty much had to be back in those days. You know, there were no public venues that would hire anything other than a copy band. Mm -hmm. So the, the influx of a lot of new bands came after we were pretty much done, you know, in the mid-70s. And then, you know, more and more venues started opening up to that, and including some larger ones in Hollywood. But... uh how aware were you of like kind of the, uh, you know, that sort of garage rock scene, like the seeds and all those bands that had happened sort of a few years earlier? Well, you know, you just brought up a 
a subject, you know, who were the original punk bands? Well, the Seeds were way before us, and they would <laughs> definitely fall in that category, <laughs> as does Rocky Erickson mm -hmm. and a few others. The Standells, now that was a punk band. I mean, yikes. Absolutely. Well, I think like, you know, once again, it's, it's very different than what you guys were doing. I think, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a yeah. great leap from them to you guys. I think, yeah, there's a, a certain sort of, you know, and I, it's amazing watching that footage from that 74 show and just seeing kind of like the archetype of, of a band that would kind of come, you know, a few years later, you know, a few, few mm -hmm. short, short years later, but like, yeah, like you, it still exists today, right? Like you, you guys could play a show you know, if, if bands could play shows now, I mean, but if you guys could play a show today and it would still seem new. Yeah. Especially if everyone was alive. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think, uh, it, you know, being situation being very different uh, than it is actually. We had a lot of influence from the early, you know, crunch guitar metal, if you will. I remember in 1970 when the uh, Man Has Sold the World album came out. I never heard a guitar that sounded that badass ever. I mean, it's like, wow. <laughs> and uh, another one that had a you know, major guitar sound was the, first, the, the Move album called Shazam. I don't know if you've ever heard that. A fantastic record, actually. I got my uh, father-in-law's yeah. copy. <laughs> Um, but no, an incredible, and you kind of like, it's, it's funny because, you know, like there certainly are these sort of swirling around sonic influences that would, you know, coalesce at a certain point, oh, yeah. but, but like mm -hmm. just to, you know, but like the style and just like the, the confrontational element to it, like that, that just feels like just so different than stuff that was happening before you guys. Well, that's what we were trying to do. And, uh, I mean, to be honest, we were catering to some of our favorite writers in the in the business. <laughs> I mean, look at Blue Oyster Cult. They had shit. Half the writers were in the journalism business, which is probably a good business move on their part. Yeah, they didn't need it, I don't think. But I mean, half their songs have six authors. <laughs> it's pretty hilarious. Well, yeah, because there's like uh, uh, Meltzer, uh, Meltzer from yeah. uh, from Vom, right? He was writing for them too. Yeah, yep, I remember him. Were were like were those types of people kind of around at the same time? Like, were you guys all going to the same sort of shows? Uh, not necessarily as friends or knowing we were going to be there, but yeah, most likely. I mean, like uh, like the first time the Pretenders came to town, I'm pretty sure everybody was pretty much there for that going back prior to that what was the first concert you remember going to huh. this is rather strange i'm trying to think well it would be uh the stan kenton orchestra at el camino el, Cam uh, el camino college and was that like, just like, did it just happen to be there? Or was that a group that you kind of followed prior to that? It was a, uh, I was in this big band at the time and Stan Kenton was on the board of directors and my saxophone teacher got me tickets for it. So, and it was just, I could walk to it from my house. 
did you kind of get taken at that point? Like, did you know that like performing was something that you wanted to kind of pursue? I guess it's like a totally different thing than what you wind up doing. Yeah, not necessarily, but uh, I, I didn't enjoy the music. So, what were some of the first rock concerts you, you remember going to? Oh, let me think here. Uh, I actually went to a Crosby, Stills, and Nash concert, but Taj Mahal opened up, so that was really cool. Oh, that's awesome. At UCLA, Poly Pavilion. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the first. But then I'm trying to think, you know, we didn't have, you know, most of us were, we were poor boys. So even though concerts were like five bucks, but uh, I remember going to, I was piling all into a van and going to the Palladium in Hollywood to see Alice Cooper. <laughs> but what's great about that concert is Howlin' Wolf opened up, but he just sat on a rocking chair with no band just him and a guitar so that, that was pretty cool got quite the run of opening acts there oh yeah yeah taj mahal helen wolf yeah i mean, i can give you a classic opening act at the whiskey go-go surfa sursa sursa mid-70s <laughs> uh the raw power iggy era was playing at the whiskey go-go and they were doing a like a five night stint, but the uh, we went we went every night. But the first night it was like yeah, a special opening act, and everybody piles in there. And the opening act was a band called Rufus with Chaka Khan, oh, and that wow. was their that was their showcase. And so they're actually opening up for Iggy. But the <laughs> cool thing is nobody gave me any shit. Everybody appreciated their skills, and there was just no bad vibes or nothing mm -hmm. it was it, i mean then you got iggy coming up which is a, a whole different thing <laughs> <laughs> those shows were amazing i mean oh those are like that's just, one of the most legendary runs of shows ever right they did he did two or they did two runs at, at the whiskey they did right? two runs they did two runs because uh i mean I, we, the band was living together on the first run and we come back from a show and we just for some reason, just go in the house and start breaking furniture and shit. So <laughs> I'm not making that up. <laughs> oh, that's so. I mean, those awesome. shows were really, really fucking amazing. And then when the it was the next round when they got Scotty Thurston on keyboards. You know who that is? No, who's Scotty? Thur I know, I know. Obviously, that second run of shows, and I've well, heard I, those bootlegs. Yeah, well, Scott Thurston. He was kind of a semi-session guy at the time, but they picked him up, and his piano playing just was perfect for the raw power songs. Mm -hmm. Ended up, he ended up getting hired by Tom Petty, and was in Tom Petty's band for the last you know fifteen years before Petty died. Wow! Because he could he could play you know any instrument, he could sing any harmony, and yeah, great guy. That run of shows is is obviously incredibly legendary, and there's been a couple of people that have been on this podcast that were there, like Keith Morris was at one of the shows and things like that. So it feels like, you know, it's one of those shows where everyone in the room winds up starting a band a few years later or winds up doing something in music. Like it, it just feels like, you know, that kind of like energy around it. Well, that's what they always said about the first Velvet Underground album. You know, not yeah. too many people bought it, but everyone that did 
ended up starting a band and count me in on that because that <laughs> did happen to me. So, and that was, quite frankly, the Velvet Underground album is the first album I ever bought. Oh, that's awesome. So what, where'd you hear about the Velvet Underground? Uh, I knew some pretty sick people in high school. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because you guys just all seem so ahead of the curve. Like, you know, even talking about being into the Stooges and these sorts of bands, like, once again, like, you know better than I, but these are certainly not mainstream bands at this time. Well, they never were. I mean, uh, I'm still amazed at what Iggy eventually became. I mean, he's, like, beloved now and very successful. And when I knew him, Oh, I had several contacts with Iggy. I mean, he was a stone junkie, man, and he was in bad shape. I mean, the first time I met him, he just looks at me kind of cockeyed and goes, you got any pills? And I'm just going, no. <laughs> but uh, so I got another Iggy story, like the apex of my imperial dog days. We We played this gig at this place on Sunset Boulevard called... Rodney Binghamheimer's English Disco. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Oh, that. my gosh. It is a, a favorite topic of mine to try and bring up on this show, so I cannot wait to talk oh, okay. about this with you. Absolutely. Well, we were hanging out there a lot because it was a cool place to hang out. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Rodney came up to us. You know, I heard about your band. I want you to play here. I want you to play here. So we do this, this gig there, and Iggy's there. Like, great. We get done with the gig, and Iggy just comes up, puts his arm around me, and says, man, that, you know, that one song, Bad and the Beautiful, I, I really want to do that on my next record. And <laughs> then he named off a couple more songs, and I'm just going, yeah, I'm done. I don't need to do anything more. <laughs> I've had enough of the band stuff. <laughs> oh, that's I mean, amazing. Mission accomplished, you know. <laughs> well, it would have been so awesome to hear him do those songs, too, because... Well, the problem was... He was an addict, and Bowie, who was going to produce the album, was really coked out. And they both ended up shortly thereafter at a UCLA medical center for a, a little tour of the Funny Farm. And uh, I guess once they got out, they just got down to the business of doing a David Bowie Iggy Pop record. So mm -hmm. that's the idiot, yeah, it I would guess, have been right? it would have been nice, but hey, I understand. <laughs> Well, it's still like it's, you know, that's the other thing about the band. It's like another band from this kind of like pre-punk era where before everything kind of coalesces and things, you know, start start going in that direction where there were bands that were just kind of had that sound before, like, you know, like ahead of it all, like yourselves. Um, well, like New York Dolls, even. You know. Yeah, definitely. What, well, like, how about the New York Dolls? Did you see them when they came through? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The first time they came. It was at the uh, Whiskey A Go Go once again. You know, I've seen several uh, great bands at the Whiskey A Go Go. That was a great place to go. But yeah, that was fantastic. <laughs> that was uh, that was a gig where they get into L.A. and I don't know what the bass player did, Killer Kane, but he ended up getting his arm broke. I think his girlfriend broke his arm. Whoa. And so they had a standing bass player. It was one of their roadies. Goes, yeah, I can play this all day long, you know. Saying so, Killer Kane was standing there with a cask on, just watching. <laughs> like standing yeah. on the stage, or did, he, did they at least yeah. let him stand off stage? 
Have you have you read the book uh, Please Kill Me? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I Years think ago. We talk about that somewhere in there. I got to reread that now. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's one of the, that, we, that was... had a, we actually had a, the uh, author of that book over at our house at one time. Lex McNeil, right? Yeah. It's it's amazing because he's like, you know, obviously they're on the other side of the country, you know, around then a little bit later kind of doing the same sort of thing. But it's just uh-huh. it's it's so amazing how there's all these pockets of, of things kind of going on. Yep. What about Solar X? Were they a band you were familiar with? Because they would have been at Rodney's too, right? Yeah, I actually saw them at a place called the Palladium, which is a big, giant shithole. <laughs> <laughs> it's like if you took CBGBs and made it 12 times bigger, yeah. maybe 120 times bigger. Anyway, uh, they were opening up for somebody. I don't remember. I think it might have been Mata Hoople. <laughs> Anyway, uh, it's kind of like this sci-fi bullshit and all that, you know. You, but standing in front of me was uh, uh, it's a science fiction author from Venice, California. What's his name? The Illustrated Man guy. Uh, oh man, I should know this. Throw me a bone, dude. I don't know. That's what I'm wondering. Okay, uh, let, let give me one. I can edit this. In. Oh, anyway. It's on the tip of my tongue, but he was standing in front of me, and he had a minder with him or something. Oh, Ray just... Bradbury. Yeah, Ray Bradbury. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Got bailed out on that. I'll one. fix it. I'll fix it in the editing. You just say Ray Bradbury, and I'll fix but it up. I in recognize that. Yeah, I read Ray Bradbury as a kid, you know. I knew what he looked like, and there he is standing right in front of me. Because there's no place to sit at the freaking Palladium unless you sit on the floor. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, the Solar X was kind of like it. Well, I guess, like, how did Imperial Dogs come together? Like, how did, you know, this this sort of band, and I, how did you wind up on this sound? Well, in high school, at least towards the end of high school, we all realized we had this common, the three of us, uh, me, Don, and Tim, had this bond about, you know, we were really into, you know, rhythm and blues, blues, rock and roll. And, you know, we just were really into the music. And uh, somehow as time went on, you know, I got a guitar and Tim got a bass. And it's like, well, where can we get together and play? Which is no place, but we managed to do it here and there when somebody's parents were gone. And, and it just kind of went on and on. We all had jobs because, uh, you know, <laughs> got to work. <laughs> and in just the limited free time we had, we'd get together. And then it came in, you know, a little more. Uh, we got into everybody's schedule, got more free time where we could play. Uh, put an ad for a drummer and found this wonderful drummer. I mean, that drummer we had was really amazing and uh it just kind of morphed into this band we started writing more and and you know just it just morphed into what it was was that the sound you guys you know wind up with on the live recording and on the the single and you know on the lp obviously was that the sound you had right off the bat or was that kind of like a, a like feeling out process to get there there's an evolution of course I mean, 
Uh, but as far as the, uh, you know, we're into the hard beat and uh, the fast beat from the get-go. I mean, we were into doing, you know, old kink songs and shit like that. You know, mm-hmm. that's. It feels like it. Yeah, definitely. It's like um, it's it's you know, obviously there's you know similarities to bands like the Stooges and and bands that are doing that sort of thing. But there's definitely like a lot more of like sort of a pop songwriting than the Stooges had, especially on the early Stooges records. Yeah, but in retrospect, that first Stooges record sounds really poppy to me. <laughs> this pop music sucks so bad. <laughs> but you really think about it because they had that. They had. They only had like three songs when they got signed, and and Ashton had to whip out enough licks or you know progressions, whatever, for uh, the rest of the album. And Iggy had to really write lyrics quick because they only had like three weeks to do it, and they pulled it off. Oh yeah, I, I prefer the second album a lot more because that's when they're cutting loose, you know, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are still classic albums. I mean, <laughs> I think John Cale produced the uh, the first album. Yeah. A friend of mine, you live in New York? No, Toronto. Oh, you live in Toronto. I, ah. But it's a friend of mine in New York. He's a, a sound engineer. His name's Harvey Goldberg. And uh, he produced a uh, John Cale album. And <laughs> He said Kale would sit in a room, he'd trap a fly under a glass, and he wouldn't move until the fly died. And then it was like, I'm ready to play now. (laughs) That's a true story. (laughs) That's an intense pre-show ritual. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we were were into all that billet stuff. John Kale, I'm still a big fan of his. When did when did uh, did Lou Reed come through solo? I guess first, or when did the Velvet Underground? Did they come through? No, Velvet Underground was loosely put together. It was part of the uh, the Andy Warhol oh, yeah, collective thingy. Yeah, and uh, and when the band really, you know, started actually being a band, you know, it was basically Lou's band, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the moneyed interest forced them to hire a woman singer, and that's how Nico got in. Did they ever come out to California and play? Uh, I think they did, but I was way too young to even know about it. Yeah. <laughs> no way I could get there. <laughs> I think the bikers out here really liked them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's such a, like, go on, sorry. I've heard of like concerts out here where they, the PA was so poorly wired, they could put the mic up to their mouth and then whip it away. And there'd be like a, like a, you know, a spark thing just going. (laughs) (laughs) And they keep doing it. Just, yeah. Well, I guess, uh, you know, that, that makes for a show you'll never forget playing. Yeah. (laughs) I wish I'd seen those, but one of them <laughs> what about like what was the scene kind of like when you guys were playing shows like what were you know the kids around you were they like glitter kids or is it sort of x well, not x but like people that are like... it'd be pre-x 
Yeah, yeah pre-X, uh, definitely pre-X. But I mean, like, were they like... Well, we didn't... The glitter thing was going, but that wasn't the kind of people that seemed to show up at our gigs. It just was just regular Joes, you know? Well, yeah, like, that's the thing is, like, you're kind of... There's, it's before a scene, I would imagine, would form. Like, were there people that would wind up being in, like, these bands a few years later coming to see you guys? Uh... I would imagine so. I mean, I mean, I talked to the. Remember a band called the Dills? Absolutely. Yeah, they had seen us back in the day. <clears throat> By the way, the bass player died, and the, the guy with that beautiful low voice. Oh mm-hmm. my God. Yeah, rest <laughs> in peace. Absolutely, incredible man. Uh, yeah, Tony Kinman. Uh, uh, he was singing once. I walk up to him. I go, "You got three balls or what?" And I just had to sing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, well, yeah, like so. Were what were like the like was Greg Shaw and the Bomb scene was and the Nerves were those bands kind of like adjacent or is it a completely different scene than what you guys were doing? No, it was about that time we knew Greg Shaw, and then who was the other writer that had the Angry Samoans? Um, Metal Mike Sanders, Saunders. Yeah, I think so. He had really bad hair. That's all you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was right about that time, and the L.A. punk was just germinating then, you know. Like, about the time we split, you know, a year later, you could actually see X play somewhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we were at a show at this place called Under the Pier in Redondo Beach. I think my wife's band was playing, but they opened up for X, and X was playing. And, you know, I hadn't heard him before, and it's just a nice, tight little club. And uh, they got a couple songs in, and then the power went out. And Billy Zoom get, grabs an acoustic guitar and plays Alice's Restaurant. Uh, some Bach fugues. <laughs> it was pretty classic. <laughs> um, I guess could, uh, I wanted to talk to you about that recording session that wound up being on the seven inch and then ultimately the, the dog meat LP. Um, how did that session kind of come about? And like how many of those songs, you know, like were written beforehand, how many were written kind of in the process of demoing them or was, was it even a demo? Uh, first of all, <laughs> This wasn't actually a demo. It was a uh, cassette recorder with two lousy mics in a garage <laughs> that was uh, insulated with old carpets, you know, to keep the noise in. <laughs> <laughs> and somebody managed to digitize them and clean them up a little bit. It sounds great on the set. That was the extent of our technology. At the time, we certainly couldn't afford to go into a studio. No fucking way. I mean, we were all living week to week. And we were all working, but it's not like we were rolling in dough. (laughs) No, I know. But the single sounds amazing. Like, it definitely, you know, it says live on the back. And I expected a live recording when I bought it all those years ago. And then hearing it, it was like, I had no Mm -hmm. idea. It predated everything either. That particular song, it it lends itself to... uh, low-grade record recording equipment because it's just, it's kind of kind of got a soft sound but a hard beat so 
Where did that title come from? Because you came up with that title, right? This ain't the summer of love. Yes, I did. Where did the idea for that came from? I came up with the title and the music and Don filled in the rest. And, uh, yeah. And I wanted to get, the, I wanted to get the bass player more involved in the band. So I go, you know what? This is a really good opportunity to do a nice intro. that's primarily bass. So I wrote that thing. I didn't write it. They wrote it in my head and, uh, Show Tim, and he was just all excited, and he got all fired up, and yeah. Aesthetically, who were your kind of influences on, like, you know, what you dress like on stage? Like, who were you guys inspired by? I don't know. <laughs> See, <laughs> Mott the Hoople. Uh, it was, just, you know, we couldn't be too picky, because like I said, we were, you know, all poor. I think those pants I was wearing, my sister sewed them. Don found a cheap ass fabric somewhere. And, uh, yeah, that's why I didn't wear shirts. I couldn't afford them. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have that skull painted on your chest that's on the cover of the Dog Meat LP? No, no. Well, Don did it with a sharpie. And, uh, <laughs> that was on the uh, in the alley behind Rodney Binghamheimer's. <laughs> yeah, Don just did it with a sharpie real quick. Yeah, yeah okay, great. But you guys would have like chains and have these props on stage that you'd have to make yourselves, right? Well, <clears throat> first of all, when we played Rodney's, the chains were easy. Don just brought one uh, tire's worth of tire chains. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we. We brought a friend of ours there, and we had him in a wheelchair, and he got a plethora of blood caps on him. In the middle of one of the songs, you know, you have a poor little man in a wheelchair. Don starts very gently chain whipping him (laughs) in the wheelchair, and then there's just fake blood everywhere. It was pretty classic. Was that coming from Alice Cooper, do you think, the theatrics? Uh... Well, it was probably an influence. I mean, mm-hmm. we were in uh, Alice Cooper before, way before even I'm 18 came out when he was recording with Zappa. Yeah, definitely. He had a record called Pretties for You that I really liked. But... Easy Action 2 is a killer album. Yeah. But when uh, uh, Love It to Death came out, I, you know, there's. Very few records I would call perfect records, but that one's damn close. I mean, every song is strong, tight, loud, and kicks ass. Yeah, I was 18 when it came out. (laughs) (laughs) And no, no, I didn't mean to say like also that you were like aping them in any sort of way because obviously no, 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 no. There's all everything is everybody's influence. You have influences you like, you know, and try to emulate them. So. Absolutely. But what you're doing is so much more extreme, you know, like the <laughs> whipping someone with a chain in the audience, you know, like it's just, it feels like, you know, it's just this sort of like amping up that would eventually kind of become punk rock a few years later, you know, and like you see, you know, yeah. bands like the Bad doing that in New York a few years later. Yeah. yeah I mean, some, most of my favorite punk bands didn't resort to, Theater, not that I'm against it, but uh, yeah. 
Well, there's there is like even in that live DVD uh, video, like from that that show you guys played. It's just like the level of aggression, like screaming at the audience, and they're all just like standing there. Yeah, and- yeah, that was a weird thing about that time. Yeah, even if people liked you, they would just stand there and stare. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not kidding. You know, I we got used to that. <laughs> <laughs> But we see these same people coming to the few gigs we had, you know, and it's like, okay. But, uh, it's it's funny because, well, because people come on this podcast that, you know, play in bands, you know, and start playing and getting into punk when it starts happening a few years later, when it really, you know, comes together and solidifies. And they keep talking about the fact that there was this energy and it was just like, it felt like it was just something that was coming together. Like, you know, it, it felt like it was, and it was coming together in three main different places and mm-hmm. maybe four, I'll even count Australia, but it was, you know, LA, New York and, and London. And it was all three completely different things, but it was coming together at the same time. I mean, but look at the disparities. Look, the, the most successful bands out of the New York punk scene weren't punk. It was Blondie, Talking Heads, and uh, Mink DeVille. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, all great bands. Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. But it's, it's London was totally different. L.A. you had you know X and just a plethora of really cool bands. You know, the Alley Cats. I don't know if you ever heard of them. Fantastic were, band, absolutely. They're fantastic. I mean, the first time we saw them, we we're in this club, and they're coming in, and the the bass player uh, Diane Chai, I believe her name is, mm-hmm. she's like four foot eight, and she's got a PA column under each arm, walking through the door. <laughs> I'm just going, are you? You got to be shit. <laughs> I go, I got to see this band. <laughs> Well, yeah, like, what did you kind of think, you know, a few years later when you do start hearing bands like Radio Birdman, like, and here's this band that's on the other side of the world, and obviously sound doesn't sound like what you guys are doing, but you're still on the same sort of, like, wavelength. Oh, it sounds great. I'm glad people are uh, still got some passion for some ass-whooping music. hmm What were some of your favorite other punk bands other than the Alley Cats, like, when that started popping off? In that era, I, I like the Dills. There were there's this other band was friends of ours. They weren't punk, but uh, they were a band that evolved with the Imperial Dogs in the same fucking neighborhood. Was the uh, Zippers? Oh yeah, fantastic band. Well, our the drummer for the Dogs ended up being the drummer in the Zippers down the line. And, uh, and they're also on Backdoor Man Records too, right? The single. I think they did a single, but they did other stuff that was uh, well. They did demos with. Uh, Ray Manzarek produced. Oh shit, that's awesome. <laughs> Ray, Ray gave Bob Willingham, the lead singer, he gave him a pair, an old pair of uh, Jim Morrison's pants. <laughs> and Bob puts them on. And he goes, "Man, they're awfully puffy in the front, dude." <laughs> <laughs> True story. <laughs> Did you ever want to do another band after Imperial Dogs? Like, obviously, you've done stuff more recently, but like, I mean, back then, did you ever try and do another uh, band? Right after? I was at, it was, uh, I was so burnt out from that that I didn't want to be in a band for a long time. I mean, I, 
I was an avid surfer and I pretty much had to give that up for that period of time. So I got back into surfing and it's just like, whoa, yeah, what, what was I thinking? And I had a career I was working on and you got to make a living. But, uh, man, I don't know. What about a few years later when the, all the surf bands started going? Like, were you aware of all, like, you know, like, I mean, all the beach bands kind of Black Flag and those sorts of bands going off? Well, interesting you bring up Black Flag. I used to live on Monterey Avenue in Hermosa Beach. <laughs> Shortly after I'd quit the dogs. Yeah, about a year afterwards. And I'd be cruising down Monterey Avenue and... I hear this band playing. Well, it's this band, there and they're playing uh, Ziggy Stardust copies. <laughs> well, that was Black Flag. That's where they lived, or the, one of the parents lived. <laughs> that would that would probably been when they were like first forming, like when they were called Panic, even or something. That would have been really yeah. early on, I imagine. But it wasn't long after that that they had the Pollywog Park incident. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you're familiar with that. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, like, you know, like much like the, the Stooges at the Whiskey in your show, like there's certain shows that I'm sure at the time did not feel nearly as big as they've gotten as the legend have kind of grown. Yeah. Yeah, well. What did you kind of think when, you know, your single came out? Did you guys ever do any reunion shows around that or, or play any gigs to promote not that really. Not really. Like even when I we broke up, there really, there was no place to play. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, we we had to rent places to play. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there just wasn't venues that uh, would support original music unless it was already established. Yeah, well, that's why you guys, I guess, or you know, wind up playing a university. Like it's just there's nowhere else to do right. it with all the lights but on. That's but that's what I like about now. I mean, we have a place down in San Diego called the Casbah, and you'll have 40 different bands playing there every week. Mm -hmm. And I never heard of any of them, but I'm going, I'm pretty stoked that all these people are forming bands and having a little fun. Well, yeah, it must be amazing to kind of be, you know, at the cusp of this wave that is still kind of crashing to this day with all these bands, like all over the world. Yeah. Yeah, and there's uh, you know different pushes in different places. Hmm. Absolutely. Well, anytime, Paul, you want to come back on this show and talk about any of these days, you're more than welcome to come back here. Oh, thank you. All righty. Thank you, Paul, for coming on the show. And hopefully Paul will come back because that guy has got some stories. <laughs> Those are some amazing stories. Also, we didn't really talk about it, but Aerosmith, in the same way Iggy Pop approached about covering songs, apparently also wanted to cover a song at some point I was reading recently. This band is is fascinating. Like, holy, am I interested in, in learning more about this band and all the uh, all all the all the LA protopunk. This stuff is uh, this is this is my my bread and butter getting this stuff. Okay, coming up next week, or I'm sorry. Next episode on this show, I'll never get that right, uh, from the band King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard and the Murlocs, Ambrose Kenny Smith will join me to talk about, 
we get deep in Melbourne music history. Like he, he schools me on some stuff I did not know about. And we talk about some Sharpies and we go, we go, we got some cool places. This is a fun little conversation that is coming up uh, in a few short days. You only got to wait a few short days for that one. All right. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids. We need to help trans people protect themselves. There needs to be a stop of hate and violence towards Asian people and and just hate and violence towards people of different faiths. And these aren't political issues. This is just basic human rights shit. This is the most basic human rights shit. So do what you can. Get informed. Um get involved. There's lots of organizations that are doing a lot of great work right now. And, uh, just fuck Nazis. Like they just, just, there's no, no space for that shit. There's no space in this place for all the hate. Um, you can also, uh, go there and make your own culture. You know, anyone can do this shit. Start a band, start a fanzine. You never know. Maybe, maybe you invent a whole music genre. You know, maybe a, Maybe invent something that people are still obsessed with, you know, nearly half a century later at this point. Like, look at, look at what Paul did. He, he just went out there, played guitar in this little band. Who would have thunk it that I, I would be obsessed with this band all these years later? So get involved, do something, uh, do something. It'll help your, it'll help your mental health. And speaking of helping your mental health, try meditating. You know, it might not work. It might work. It worked for me, and uh, I didn't believe in it. I did not believe in it. So maybe it will work for you. Uh, you can also sign your organ donor cards, because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't fucking need them. They're just dead weight, literally dead weight. So just get get them out of my body. That's what I'm going to say. Get these things out of my body. I don't need them. And maybe they're going to help someone else. I, I can speak from personal experience of seeing it help someone else, so... You know, uh, be kind to yourself too. Just try and stay kind to yourself. We're, we're all too negative. We got to stop this negative self-talk, myself included. You know, just be kind to yourself. Go easy on yourself. Um, and that's it. Stay safe. And I will see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening.